Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Black and White Sports Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Quentin Corpuel. On today's episode, we have a very special guest joining us. Along with, hosting, <laughs> along with hosting radio shows and podcasts for the Bowie Bay Sox, he's their current play-by-play commentator, as well as the lead voice of Mount St. Mary's basketball, both men's and women's. He's held several different positions within, the, within minor league baseball, including corporate sales executive for the Bay Sox and assistant general manager for the formerly known Frederick Keys, also of minor league baseball. He's essentially the Luca Garza of minor league baseball <laughs> yes he can truly do it all the one the only adam pole adam how are you today Quentin, that was that was that was a, a uh, humbling or uh, that was a lot there i really expect I, I really really thank you for that i'm doing great and uh looking forward to chatting and uh talking about you know kind of uh the life as a minor league broadcaster and what is such a an uncertain time, unfortunately, in our industry. But, uh, but, but all in all, thank you so much for for having me. Honored to have you here. This is this is awesome. I, I look forward to it too. First off, before we get into your, to your uh, to your career, how was uh, how was your Thanksgiving break? <laughs> Good, you know. I mean, it, I've got a little girl now, so it was different. Now, I am a big fan of the artist formerly known as the Redskins. Mm. Uh, so I'm a huge uh, uh, fan, uh, Skins fan, or Washington fan. And uh, so I'm really, uh, you know, it, it was, to be honest, we're not used to winning. So, so being a fan, that's one of the things that, you know, a lot, a lot of times uh, I, I've really enjoyed that. A lot of my colleagues, and, and you, you see who they're fans of and who they, you know, what team really gets them excited. You know, for me, I am a season ticket holder for Washington. Yes. And, and uh, uh, you know, I, I've just been a lifelong diehard fan. I am that age though. You know, like when I was a kid, it was the eighties and the Gibbs era. So, so that was the, the highlight for me. Now Thanksgiving is usually my, my family's main holiday. So it was a bummer, you know, to not be together. We, we played it safe. So, uh, but, uh, but all in all uh, we're, we're safe and, and uh, doing well. So I hope you had a good one as well. Yes, we we did. We uh, stayed in with just some immediate family and watched uh, the football team demolish the Cowboys on uh, <laughs> Thursday evening. So I wanted to first get into sort of about you. So you've been in this, you've been in the broadcasting industry for a very long time. You mm-hmm. started out at UNC at the Tar Heel Sports Network in '03 and have sort of had your name in this industry for since then when did you know that this was something you wanted to do for a living oh man that's a great question i you know to be honest i i wanted to do this for a long time i was a kid broadcasting his video games everything like that but i think there is a little bit of a different moment of boy i i'd like to do that to having it be a reality right and for me, when I was at Carolina, I'm here lo- locally yeah, from the D.C. area. And uh, I went to UNC, but I was a musician. So I was on a music scholarship. But I knew I didn't want to be like a high school marching band instructor. My family's all in music. Um, it w- music was an incredible experience. And I think it has aided me as a broadcaster. But in the end, you know, it was, I was after maybe my, I can't, my junior year at Carolina, and uh, I took a sports casting summer class. Now, it's something I wanted to do. 
and I did very well in that class. It was funny because I was in it with the current voice of the Tar Heels, John's Angel, who became a colleague of mine, and he does an outstanding job at UNC currently. And um, for me, that was the beginning, you know, and um, I then got internships. And uh, but what, once I locked in that first internship, uh, which was in uh, a, a small town, Asheboro, North Carolina, for a team that still exists in in a collegiate summer league baseball called the Asheboro Copperheads. Once I locked that internship in, it was like, all right, here we go. Like, we're going to try to make this thing work. And and uh, it's been it's been quite a, an awesome journey for now, just about basically 20 years. So I want to talk about just UNC for another quick sec. Yeah. Were you there when the basketball team won the national championship in 05? Were you still there? <laughs> I barely missed it. Now, I was not a student. Uh, but, but, but so kind of, uh, you know. Okay. I, so I was not there when it happened. Uh, I got my first full-time job that took me away from Chapel Hill in late February of 2005. So for the majority of that season, I was there. Uh, and, uh, of course that was the Raymond Felton, Sean May, Rashawn McCants team, uh, Roy Williams, first national title. And, um, it was kind of, it was so exciting, but it was also somber for me because I had moved away from this place. I loved, I went to school there. Then I worked for a few years in that area and still lived with like my best college buddies in Chapel Hill. Well, I worked in places like Burlington, North Carolina and, and the like in Asheboro that I mentioned prior uh, before Burlington. And then, but, you know, at, at, at some point you got to not be an intern anymore. So, so I got my first full-time job and I moved to Roanoke, Virginia, which is only a two-hour drive. But uh, it, to not be in Chapel Hill when they won, that was, uh, when they beat Illinois that night, it was uh, wild. Now, the funny thing is I was in an apartment I think I scared my neighbors. I was going, I was going so, you know, so loud because they like moved out a week or two later. So I feel bad about that, but, but, well, hey, but all I'll... in all, I, I just missed it. I literally just missed it. Well, at least you were alive to witness it. Something, <laughs> something amazing. Yes. Something amazing. So I want to transition now. You were talking about moving mm-hmm. a lot. And before you landed with the Bay Sox, you bounced around several different minor league clubs. Mm-hmm before you landed with the Bay Sox, uh, as well, uh, including the aforementioned Keys. You were with the formerly known Salem Avalanche sure. and the formerly known Burlington Indians. Wow. That's, that's a sign changed. there, Quentin, too. You've been around a while when, when the majority of the teams you work for have different names. <laughs> what, was it, what was it like bouncing around from team to team? What were those experiences like, and is there anything you learned from those experiences? Oh, my goodness, definitely. I mean, obviously, I was very green – you know, when I started, my first full-time job was Salem, which is basically the Roanoke area. I lived in Roanoke and worked for the team in Salem, Virginia. They're now the Red Sox uh, high-level A affiliate. Uh, and then I worked there for two seasons. Uh, that was a, a huge opportunity for me. It was my first, and uh, I had things that I did had a lot of success with. I had parts of my job that I struggled with. And when I went to Frederick in my next job, I was really, really focused on being kind of an employee that could do everything. And in minor league baseball, you know, usually when you think of a broadcaster, you're just thinking of what they're doing during the game. But in minor league baseball, well, obviously for any broadcaster, there's a lot of prep work to be ready for your broadcast. But in minor league baseball, 
uh, usually that person is also heading a public relations department. So you are the one that's putting out all of the, the notes and all of the press releases and, and writing the programs and updating and doing all of the, uh, you know, the, the website and, and, and also handling all media requests for players, you know, things of that nature. You're kind of in charge of running the press side of the operation. Uh, and, and so with that, with the public relations, media relations, you know, that's a lot of work. And you might say, wow, that's a lot. But to be honest, many times you need to do even more than that because those are all non-sales entities. And, and there are many broadcasters in the minor leagues uh, that are also salespeople. And in minor league baseball, you sell one of two things. You either sell tickets or you sell advertising. And when you're selling tickets, you know, there comes a lot with that, you know, making sure, you know, the, the people that are coming to the game have all the accommodations they need and such. So usually advertising is a better fit for a broadcaster to sell. Um, so uh, all in all, that's really what I did. I, you know, I, 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 I sold advertising in the early time and I did the PR work and, but I ended up rising up to running the marketing department, which was basically running one aspect of, of the business side for the Frederick Keys. And that was probably the biggest success I ever had in my career, Quentin, because, you know, not only was, were we having so much fun, we had such great staffs, but, uh, but I was really a leader, you know, and, uh, I was a big part in helping raise the revenue that that club was bringing in. And I was still doing that while doing what I wanted. So th those, when, when I look back at my time in Frederick, it, it really is uh, the most special of my career. We are back after some technical difficulties, but the show must go on. <laughs> so, as I was saying earlier, I wanted to double click into sort of the marketing aspect of minor league baseball you were talking about. Certainly. So in an earlier interview, I forget where, but you were talking about how minor league baseball is such a small business. Mm -hmm. And with that, you obviously not only have to be a broadcaster, you have to be all these other things in order to obviously help a team, as you were talking about earlier with the keys. So, Right now, you are the sales executive for the Bowie Bay Sox. I, want to, I, want, I wanted to talk about that a little bit. So did that just come with getting the broadcasting job? So, yeah. So for me, um, what, what I did in my career was that um, I, I've used my business uh, in, in that acumen, if you will, I mean, per se, to, to, to help my broadcast career. So uh, with Bowie, uh, I noticed that they just did not have a normal broadcasting setup. And I reached out over years, you know, with their general manager, who's a, such a great guy, Brian Shellcross. And I, I talked to Brian about, um, you know, about what I could do. It's hard though, because every organization is set up differently, Quentin. So, um, so what I did was I took, a model of what a lot of people are doing in minor league baseball, meaning you have um, a, a broadcaster that is a sponsorship salesperson, and then he is also calling your game. So he is, this person is making you money and then also, uh, you know, performing this resource for you. So you're not paying for that on the back end to somebody else, if that makes sense. Yeah. So they're almost doing a job and a half. 
And uh, that's what I did. So it, it, it was, a, you know, a great fit for me to let you know, uh, I actually have moved on from the base Sox as a, you know, on the sales side, but I'm still going to be their broadcaster going forward. And I'm working for a, a local marketing agency now called Graphcom. But f- for our conversation and for the look at, uh, at as far as uh, creating a role for yourself as a young broadcaster in minor league baseball. Yes. That, that's, that's the more important thing here. And what, what you want to do is you want to find a way uh, to not only, you know, be a great guy on the air, be a great guy in the office and everything, but also be a resource, uh, you know, for your team because really your team is almost like a mom and pop shop, right? I mean, a lot of bigger organizations, major league teams are like bigger businesses. And I'm not just talking about the big business of sports. I'm just talking about going to a job and, and, and there are eight floors and a hundred people work on each floor. You know, you know what I'm saying? And you yeah. work in a subdivision. That's not minor league baseball. I mean, my minor league baseball, you know, the first place I worked, the owner of the team ran the team and I was his one intern. You know what I mean? Wow. You, you know, so, so it, it's not always going to be like that. But if you start and work in, in minor league baseball, especially on the smaller end of the minors, which I've spent the majority or all of my career kind of at that level, you know, you're looking at staffs that are going to be 10, 15, 20 people full time or less. So that means everybody needs to do a little bit of everything and making yourself somebody that can be an asset. Uh, to move the financial goals of the organization forward is enormous. That's great. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree in that. I, as a young broadcaster, if I wanted to become a broadcaster, I should be able to not only th- call a game, but obviously the minor leagues got to be able to do a bunch of different things. So I think that's definitely good to know. Now, you can argue it the other way, though. So this is this would be the other angle, which is that Right. If you don't do that, you better be one heck of a broadcaster or uh, you you need you have a short shelf life and you need to make it. And there is a there is a good aspect of either making it or not making it, because if your true goal is to be a major league broadcaster and, you know, you're you want to have a family, you want you know, you want to make a good salary, yada, yada, yada. Well, you know, you're going to have to make it. And if you don't make it and uh, you end up doing, uh, you know, kind of working in minor league baseball for, uh, you know, a long time, 20, 30, you know, whatever many years, it's just, it's tricky. You know, it's got to be a passion of yours. I mean, to be able to make it work. And sometimes those that uh, have a little bit more of an urgency because they're solely focused on the broadcasting, sometimes for people like that, that is an advantage, you know, because they're like, look, if I don't move up and I don't win some of these big jobs right now, then I'm going to be out, you know. Um, and, and I have thought a little bit about what my career would have been like if, if I had a little bit more of that urgency, because I definitely took the role of let me find a way to make myself an asset for my bosses, the biggest asset I can be and have that help me in, in uh, you know, being a good employee and enjoying my job and, and, uh, and obviously not worrying about my job. You know, when you're making people money, you're, you're not, you're not worried that your role is going to be cut, you know? So, so there, there's a, there's a lot that goes into that, but there are successful people 
uh, in the industry that have done it either way. That's great. That was, that was some great advice. Since we're a little short on time, I wanted mm-hmm. to just to cut to some topics I wanted to talk about. Sure. So I just want to close out the minor league section before we move on to you being at the Mount. Yeah. Yeah. So, so baseball games are very long. <laughs> they are lengthy. Yes. There is a lot of time <laughs> that you have to fill mm-hmm. in between when the ball is actually in play. So it's kind of a two-parter. How much time do you spend preparing for a game? And how do you fill time in between when the ball is actually in play? Oh, this is a great question. I, I love talking about this. I, to me, you know, the funny thing, and I'll, I'll transition this into the mount. I mean, yeah. the, the thing is, baseball and basketball have been my two main uh, broadcast joys. And, you know, I broadcast more baseball games in a year than basketball. But you really have to you have to do more preparation for every baseball game than every basketball game. And it's for what you just said, you know, in basketball, the ball's in play and you don't want to interject too much into it because if you're especially doing a radio call for basketball, you really, really need to just call that game, you know? And if the game is even a blowout or the game is close, you're basically calling the game in, in, you know, in baseball, it, it, it's, it's really a different type of challenge. And the reason for that is because, you know, you don't know if you're going to get a two-and-a-half-hour game or a three-and-a-half-hour game, if it's going to be a close nail-biter or a blowout. Uh, you know, it, it's just it's so different. If, if it's 13-1 to one in the seventh inning, I mean, I'm telling stories. You know, <laughs> yeah. and, and I'm still telling you what's happening in the game, but 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 that's not really what the focus of the broadcast is on. If it's two to one in the seventh inning, the focus is on every pitch, you know, because the game is on the line. It, it's it's tough because sometimes, you know, you can be so prepared. You can have all these stories, all these anecdotes, whether they're anecdotes about the individual or about the team or even about something as random as this date in baseball history or whatever. But, but like, you don't want to go on a three-minute you know, rant about what Lou Gehrig did on this date in 1934 if it's 2-1 to one in the seventh inning. Now, if it's 13-1, to one, you know, you, you can tell a story. So that, that's a, that is a big thing. And I think as a, a baseball broadcaster, it reminds me a lot of being a jazz musician because jazz music is not about the notes on the page. It's about the chord structure. And you have to, when you see a chord structure, create the music that fits the parameters of that. And that's what baseball broadcasting is, because you don't really know what the chord structure is going to be, you know, of that game. And you've got to be ready for whatever that game gives you. And uh, that's why it's such a great challenge to broadcast uh, baseball. Yeah, especially because it's the only sport that's not timed. So you could be in for a two-and-a-half-hour game or a four-and-a-half-hour game. Yeah, there was, one night on the... there was one night I was broadcasting with Tim Murray, who now is with VSIN, the VSIN network in Vegas. He's had a great, great career and is a, a really, really great friend. And Tim, <laughs> Tim and I broadcast a game in Frederick that started at 6 p.m., right? And yeah. our game lasted two hours and four minutes. You know, of the 140 games, it was like our shortest game of the year. So it ended at 8 o'clock. 
And there was a game in our league that went 24 innings. It started at one thirty, and it ended at like 8.15 or something. It ended, you know, they started at 1 or one thirty, and they ended after our game ended. So you, you really, as you said, you never know. It, so it, it, is, it, it really is a, a, unique, a unique, uh, unique sport. Especially with COVID. Like, I noticed something this year, the, even the major league broadcasters, like, because there were no fans in the stands, because there was nothing really happening other than the game, mm-hmm. they had even more time to fill. Like, even, like, I'm a, I'm a Yankees fan, mm-hmm. and I would watch the games on Yes Network, and Michael K would be just talking about, like, the same anecdote for four innings. <laughs> and, like, that, that barely got him through it. And so I've really learned to, like, appreciate just how much, like, stuff you need to have in your bag in order to keep your audience engaged because no one really likes a silent baseball game. There's no I mean, doubt. Or at but least that's just me. You don't want it to always be a stat. You know, stats and things like that can, can explain a player a little bit about what they're trying to do at the plate. Uh, you don't want it to always be a story, but it can be. The, the big thing for me is to try to have something to say that's different about these same people every night. It is so easy to say the same thing about people all the time. The other thing about baseball that's crazy is if you hit 300, right, you're an amazing yeah. hitter. If you hit 200, you're terrible. I mean, that that's really not that big of a difference. I mean, if you think about it, that's 30 hits out of 120 hits out of 100. So you're going to have times where that 300 hitter is struggling, and you're going to have times where that 200 hitter is hot. You need to celebrate uh, the gifts of every player on the team. And also, uh, when somebody's struggling, you need to lay it out and talk about the fact that they're languishing a little bit no matter if they're the star of your team or not. And I think that when you do that, you really earn the favor of your fans. Baseball fans are very loyal. And they're also people that, uh, that are more than likely going to be tuning in night after night. And because of that, when you do that extra preparation work and you have different things to say and different angles to talk about people and approach at things, I mean, it, it really, really lends to people loving you as a broadcaster. And the reason for that is there's nothing more annoying than if a guy that is a dead pull hitter and strikes out all the time, if you just show stats about how much he's striking out. It's like, duh, everybody knows that. I'm not saying it's not valid because it's very valid. But you, have, you understand that, that you, know, you don't want to do that 162 nights out of 162. Well, yeah, talk about, a, talk about different things, same player, Chris Davis. Sure. He hits 50, what was this, like 59 homers in 2013. He's the leading home run leader in all of mm-hmm. baseball. And then this year, he doesn't get a hit for 50-plus games. <laughs> I mean, it, it's – So, yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and uh, you know, there's, there's a lot to that. So, obviously, when Chris Davis was uh, one the best power hitter in the game, led the American – or I think he led the majors, maybe just the American League in homers two out of three years – I mean, uh, you celebrate that, but there are moments in a season where he's going to struggle and it's vice versa too, you know? So uh, you don't want to be all negative as a broadcaster uh, on a player when they're obviously, uh, you know, in a part where they're well past their prime like Davis is. Exactly. So since we're short on time, I want to transition over now to the Mount. So... When they won the NEC tourney yeah. in 2017, you were on the call, 
and right after they won, it was re- no, it wasn't really that close of a game. It was St. Francis, sure? correct? And it wasn't really was it that close of a game? Yeah, I can't it remember. It wasn't. It was a little back and forth. The Mount actually trailed at halftime, but they 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 really got up big with a huge run in the early second half. So so they they had it well in hand going down the stretch. So right when the buzzer sounded, storm the court, camera shoots on guys like Junior Robinson. Mm-hmm. You exclaimed, you were on the call, the mounts got the chance to dance. (laughs) Are those lines something that you prepare for in advance? Like, if, if, like, like before the game, you're like, okay, if the mount wins, I'm going to say this. If they lose, I'm going to say this. Or do those kinds of lines just kind of find their way to you in the moment? Because there's so many of those calls in not only college, but major league everything. I mean, uh, just trying to think off the top of my head right now. You got Joe Buck. We will see you tomorrow sure. night. David Freeze, 2011. And then I guess since we're talking college basketball, uh, Gus Johnson, the slipper still fits. Gonzaga, <laughs> yeah. 99. And the funny thing is that Joe Buck's father, you know, Jack Buck, said yeah. that during the 1991 World Series when, when uh, Kirby Puckett hit a home run to walk off game six and keep, you know, keep the series alive. So it was cool about uh, Joe Buck was he was almost honoring his father, you know, with that call. It's so cool. And you're a Yankee fan. So, you know, of course, John Sterling is so famous for this, yes. right? For saying the same thing every time uh, the Yankees win. Uh, I grew up, uh, you know, listening to Orioles baseball and it was uh, John Miller, my favorite broadcaster, uh, does not do that, has a lot of catchphrases, but uh, but not the same thing every time they win. But Joe Angel, who I've listened to forever, uh, just retired Oriole, you know, voice of the Orioles, uh, you know, would say the same thing uh, when they won. I made a decision a few years into my career to do that. I, I just think like I like that. Like as a as a fan, you know, you want to hear the uh, broadcasters say like the same thing when they win, you know. And for me, that was uh, something that. I decided to do. I, I still wonder if I'll always do that, you know, but, but definitely uh, with Mount St. Mary's, I always say Mount St. Mary's is victorious. It sounds, you know, pretty, you know, standard, but it's the way I say it, you know, and, and with the excitement that, that, uh, you know, I mean, just think about John Sterling, the Yankees win, but it's the way he says it, right? Oh, <laughs> Yankees exactly. win. So, so as a Yankee fan, you're sitting there waiting for it. Um, you know, so, so for, so that, that's a big thing for me, you know? Um, so for, when we went to that tournament in 17, it was the second one that I broadcast. So went right when the buzzer hit, you know, I, I did my, you know, mounts, you know, mounts St. Mary's is victorious. And then I said, and the mount has, has the chance to dance. I'm trying to think of where I came up with that. I think one of my friends texted it to me, uh, during that game. I, I don't actually think I came up with it that one. One of my buddies from college texted me and said, I can't believe the Mounts got a chance to dance. <laughs> ah, and you're like, oh, you know, light bulb. I was like, I like that. But, but I do have to say that over time, you know, for big games, big events, I do believe you want to be ready, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and by ready, it doesn't mean you have to know exactly what you're going to say. But you have to be ready for the moment because um, to just completely – go with it and, and say whatever, you know, and not be prepared for at least some semblance of what you're going to say, I think is a mistake. Both times the Mount went to the NCAA tournament, 
Um, I had blowout wins 2014 and 17. So to be honest, uh, there's that little, that last media timeout. And I sat there and said, all right, what am I going to say? <laughs> you know yeah. And, and so that you could pull it off. And for me, it was an honor because uh, when, when the Mount went to the NCAA tournament in 17, uh, we all amassed uh, at Mount St. Mary's to watch the uh, bracket show. And CBS did a one-minute intro, you know, prior to the bracket. Yeah. And I was one of, like, three calls that was featured. And it was, like, everybody went nuts when, when you know, when it said the Mount <laughs> has the chance. You know, when, actually, I think on CBS they played me saying Mount St. Mary's is victorious, right? And then, uh, and then ESPN uh, did a big bracketology, you know, like, uh, you know, montage. And they used only a few calls. And I was one of that, those two. And, and that one, it said the Mount's got the chance to dance. And, and uh, that was, you know, obviously for, for me, you know, you're just watching TV and all of a sudden your voice is on there. And it's just, it's really humbling to be a, a part of something so big and, What's been so much fun for me in my time with Mount St. Mary's is that the Mount is really a community uh, that loves basketball and they have great fans. And I, uh, it's a very small community, but this is a big deal to that community. And uh, because of that, uh, you know, I, I, I hold this cherished role. There's so many people that would love to have that. And, you know, there's a lot of small division one basketball programs that play in two, two to 5,000 seat or two to 10,000 seat empty arenas, you know, to be honest. Uh, I've sat in many of them and called Mount games. But at Mount St. Mary's, that's not what you get. I mean, the Mount is usually half full to full, and that place is rocking. And it's, it's just a, a great, great atmosphere and place to, to uh, call home and be a broadcaster. It's, it's, it's really been uh, the, the most amazing thing I've been able to do as a broadcaster is be the voice of the mount. I was watching the first four game from 2017 when you played New Orleans. Mm -hmm. That was a really exciting game. And even though it was a first four game between two 16 seeds, the place was still rocking. And that's just something I guess we have to appreciate that people care so much about their teams, even if, you know, they're on a small scale like Mount St. Mary's or even someone like New Orleans. Oh, there's no doubt. And one thing about that, Quentin, about sports in general is it's all about expectations. You know, I mean, it, you know, here I am watching my Washington football team and going nuts, you know, Thursday and we're two, three and seven teams playing each other. You know, I mean, you know, the reality of it is that if you go into a season thinking you're going to win the national championship game, right? And you're, you know, and you're, you're playing a 16 seed and beating them. There's no excitement. You know, getting to the NCAA tournament is not like this big thing, you know. I mean, I went to a college like that. Getting to the NCAA tournament when you're the University of North Carolina is not what it's all about, right? Yeah. But when you're at Mount St. Mary's and, um, you know, this is the lifeblood of that program is finding a way to get to that tournament over and over the you know that is the passion of your faithful and the dream of the the players that go there is to play on that stage i mean it is amazing and for me in 2017 we beat new orleans we go to villanova uh and you know uh not go to villanova but we play the number one team in the nation villanova 
who was the champion in both 16 and 18. And we played them in the first round of the 2017 tournament. And uh, two minutes into the second half, we were winning. So it was, it was a game we gave them a little bit of a scare. And uh, it was a lot, just an incredible. I mean, for me, that run was the most fun I've ever had with broadcasting. Absolutely. I mean, if Villanova had not lost to Wisconsin in the next round and maybe it had gone to win the national championship game, you could, you could have said, hey, guess what? We gave the national championship – or, excuse me, national <laughs> champions run for their money. You know um, it. You know it. <laughs> one more thing on uh, the mount. So I was watching uh, – I'm a Miami Hurricanes guy. Both my mm-hmm. parents and some, well, uh, some relatives went there, so that's kind of been in the house for a while. I was watching uh, Miami, North Florida. Okay. It was in Cora Gables. And not like that kind of game draws a big crowd in non-COVID years. Sure. But it was really eerie. <laughs> I mean, obviously, without fans, no band, the seats on the bench were all spread out. You could hear everything that was being said on the court. What has broadcasting college basketball games been like this season? So, you know, I'm about to find out. Uh, the Mount has made a decision to not travel me this year due to COVID. Ah. So this first week of the season, I, I haven't done any other games. But I am doing all of the men's and women's home games. So our first women's home game is, is here this week. And uh, it's going to be unique. They're really ready for it. They're going to pull us away from the court. Uh, they're going to have some ambient noise playing through the arena anyways. But the, the thing I think that's going to be the weirdest of it all is I, I really do believe that the players are going to be able to hear everything I say. And <laughs> that really <laughs> hasn't been the case in the past. So I think that that's going to be the weirdest thing, that when the, when the ball's in play, I mean, like that's going to happen. Years ago, uh, when I was with Frederick, Winston-Salem had a snafu in building a new stadium. And they literally had a season in which they had to go play in their old stadium. But it was marketed towards the new stadium. Nobody went to these games, right? In Mm -hmm. my first series, the first night I went there, there was like 20 people in a crowd, you know, for a game. And I'm broadcasting from an elevated perch well above home plate, you know, much further away, of course, than you would uh, in a basketball setting where you sit on the court. And, uh, and, you know, one of the players came up to me afterward and said, Adam, man, that was, that was a lot of fun. You know, we basically <laughs> sat in the deck and listened to your whole broadcast. Like, I wish we could do that every night. <laughs> They're going, oh, my God. So I thought about that night. I thought about that night when, uh, when you know, when, when this was all going down and, and how this setup is going to be. And obviously, I just feel very fortunate to be involved at all. Um, you know, it's been such a hard year. Uh, to, to have minor league baseball eliminated for the season. And uh, so I, I can't wait. You know, it's going to be the first time I call the game in, in uh, almost nine months. That's, that's going to be awesome. Um, Adam, I know you're short on time, so I'm going to let you go here. Hopefully we can talk again. There's a little bit more I wanted to get to, but obviously uh, you have to, you've got to be places. Adam, I thank you so much for coming on. This was a pleasure. Anytime, Quinn. I really, really appreciate you reaching out, and uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for your preparation. You know, you talk about preparation. A big thing in broadcasting and in life is being prepared, and I have not done many interviews where people knew uh, this much uh, about me and my broadcast career, so I really, really appreciate your preparation, 
and uh, and and uh, the chat that we had today. So thank you and and best of luck. Thank you. Make sure to check out the blackandwhite.net. Stories going up every day. The rutabaga.net, Whitman Satire website. Adam, thanks again. Take care. Today is part two of our conversation with Bowie Bay Sox and Mount St. Mary's men's and women's basketball commentator, Adam Pohl. We had to cut part one a little short because Adam had things to do along with some technical difficulties, but we're here now. We're here now, I'm and that's you, all that matters. Take two is gonna, part two is going to be smooth sailing, so, so I'm excited. But thank you again, Quentin, for having me on. And uh, see, this is what happens when you when you have me on and I got to pick up my daughter from daycare. Uh, (laughs) That's what happens, because I am not the uh, you you know, when I tell a story, it just keeps going. I mean, I'm a long distance runner. I'm I'm not a sprinter. I'm not the Usain Bolt of storytelling. I, you know, I'm I'm the great marathoner, you know, of storytelling. So that's what happens. Well, that makes for a great conversation. Now that we have a little (laughs) bit more time, we can certainly get more into that. So. Let's get let's get right into it with the Bowie Bay Sox. Yeah, I want to start out by asking. So, in your interview, in one of the interviews that you had previously before this, you were talking about how obviously minor league baseball is small business. Gotta gotta mm-hmm. be able to do multiple things. Gotta be able to be versatile. You told a story about how you were done after like a ten plus hour <laughs> day of broadcasting and working with the Bay Sox and sure. then someone calls you and is like, all the toilets are clogged. Can you help us <laughs> flush all the toilets? Yes. Other than that story, do you have any interesting minor league baseball stories or anecdotes you could tell that you just say like, Oh, only in minor league baseball. Oh my God. Yeah. Now that this could be a whole episode. Yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there are so many things that have happened, you know, in my career that, uh, uh, that and, and I think about all the places I've been. You know, I think about Burlington, uh, North Carolina, when I was in the Appalachian League to start. We had a game that the other team had to play because they were in the pennant race, and uh, you know, and it was raining all night long. We didn't start the game until eleven thirty at night. So Ooh. the only people that were there in the end were the people that worked there, and they ended up deciding to go to the brand new deck down the right field line and watch the movie old school. So I'm broadcasting <laughs> the game and there's a game going on. There's no fans. So it was very 2020. And, you know, and, and you could hear, uh, you know, Frank, the tank making it happen down the right field line. And everybody was laughing hilariously. They were, it was, it was a surreal, surreal event. I mean, that's just obviously from one place. I mean, uh, there, I, there are so many, uh, some of it is a, about obviously the events uh, and some of the circumstances that happen within minor league baseball, like uh, probably the wildest story, but it's a marathoner is about uh, my time with a Frederick keys when I was in charge of marketing and bringing in promotions. And we brought in the cowboy monkey rodeo and the, do- the dogs that chase the sheep got loose. Oh yeah. Well, actually it was the sheep. They got loose. And so you've got these big, you know, ram horned sheep and they're literally running around the city of Frederick during the game and on a huge night sellout crowd, you know, which everybody, if they're just working the game, 
is busy as you know what, right? Mm-hmm. And half of our staff is literally running after sheep in the city of Frederick, not even in the stadium, trying to get them, corral them, get them back to the stadium uh, for what was, you know, their show that would happen right as the game ended. So that that's one of like 20 things that happened that night. I mean, so all in all, minor league baseball, I mean, it is – it, 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 all the stories, it is what you think it is. And I can't wait for somebody to, uh, to do one of these uh, long form dramas on it, because I'm telling you, it's, uh, it, it's obviously an incredibly unique line of, of work. Can you compare, I mean, obviously, other than the skill difference, mm-hmm. how does the atmosphere at a minor league baseball game differ from a from a uh, from a major league baseball game, from your experience. Well, I, I think to be honest, you know, this is funny to say this, but um, I started uh, full time in the minor leagues in 2005. I started calling baseball in college summer league baseball in 2001, uh, but I was in the minor leagues starting in 2003. So it, it goes back a ways. In that time, it was I think very different. What you're starting to see is that the ways that minor league baseball uh, has uh, entertained fans over the years, not exactly the same, but because so much of minor league baseball is promotions that are on the field. You don't see that in major league baseball, but you see uh, their ability to entertain through the video boards so much so, which now is a huge component of the minors as well, that you know when, when I started in this, once again, early 2000s, uh, a major league game and a minor league game felt very different. Not so much the same. You're 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 not going to see, you know, a drunk fan getting up and chewing out the right <laughs> fielder for throwing it to the wrong bag. You know. Uh, now yeah. the funny thing is, most people think that's a terrible thing. I love that. You know, like I love passion, right? So 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 uh, sometimes I want the fans to be more passionate than the minors. But but that's the biggest difference. I mean, at a major league game. Uh, you're there for the game. And at a minor league game, the game is a part of this broader experience. In the same regard, part of that experience in the minor leagues is to pay 10 bucks and sit right on the field. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. obviously you can sit as close to a major league game as you can with the minors, but you're going to pay out the you-know-what, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. most families that are going to spend 15 bucks on a ticket for a major league game uh, you know, they're going to, they're sitting in the nose place and you go to a minor league game and you put your kids there behind the net and they're sitting third row and they're watching and feeling the speed of what that 90 mile an hour fastball is and seeing the passion of what these young players are as every night they're laying their dreams on the line to try to get noticed to, to become big league ball players and live out their ultimate dream. It's a very beautiful thing. So, I've been to a couple minor league games. The last one I went to was uh, oh, who uh, the Hartford Yard Goats, there you go. formerly yeah, the yeah. formerly the um, oh my god, New Britain Rockcats. These cats there rock. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And at the game, we were sitting in. It was me and my cousin and my immediate family, and we were sitting in right field, but like right up, like right, like as close as you can toward the field. Mm-hmm. And the section next to us is all a bunch of, like, probably drunk um, 30 to 40-year-olds. 
and they're just trying to get the right fielder. His name was Sam. I forgot what his last name was, but his name was Sam. And every time he would do something, they would just go crazy. <laughs> and eventually, like later into the game, they all started chanting. You know the chant like da na na, da na na. So it went da na na, and then the section over go Sam, Sam, and they would just do that until he noticed him. Yeah, and then he he like very subtly like fist pumped, and that he just made all of the nights, and that was just my favorite part. You know, it's pretty funny because my college buddies went to a game when I was just starting this back in Burlington, North Carolina, and uh, they had a similar experience as they were taunting the third baseman from the Danville Braves all night long. And uh, <laughs> I thought it was pretty funny. I mean, I could hear them taunting them in the, from the booth. I'm like, oh, my God. And, uh, and the next day, I saw my, my boss's wife, and she goes, oh, my goodness, Adam. That, she's like, all your friends were at the game last night. I'm like, yeah. She goes, they were really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it is pretty funny. I mean, obviously – uh, Hartford, though, I'm telling you, Hartford is for a minor league ball game. That's that's really like a major league ballpark. It's almost like if you had a major league stadium that seated 6,500 to 7,000 people instead of seating, you know, 35 to 50,000 people. It, it feels yeah, like you're Dunkin in a major Don- league stadium. Dunkin' Donuts Park was, I think it's new, like really it's, new. It's a three-year but yeah, I think they like you were talking about promotions. I think they literally had like uh like on an off day, you could go like yes, golfing like on can. the field. And my grandpa sent me a newspaper about that. <laughs> and yeah, it was that must have been really cool, but yeah, the promotions are always awesome. They're all I feel like they're always giving something away or doing some kind of fan experience whatnot. In your mm-hmm. experience as sort of a as a sales sure. executive, or a marketing person, what do you want the ideal customer experience to be at a minor league baseball game? Well, you, you know, minor league baseball is all about affordable family fun. So uh, you want it to be just a great family night out, a nine inning vacation, you know, of sorts. And uh, you want the experience to be more than just a game. And the funny thing is, this is where my initial point comes in major league baseball want this as well right so the new york yankees most famous team in in all of baseball whether you love them or hate them in the yankees i'm listening years ago when they were having a one of their down seasons which means they were probably slightly above 500 and and yeah and uh and john sterling the voice of the yankees is doing an ad and he goes new york yankees baseball it's more than just a game and i just started laughing because that was the slogan of the miners you know, when I got in, every team's slogan was that. And then it kind of changed to affordably fun. And, and the funniest thing about the more than just a game mantra is I just th- thought, you know, if the Yankees aren't more than just a game, like who is, right? right? I mean, like, like if you're not yeah. going to the Yankees to see the game, who, like where are you going to just see the game? So, so I, <laughs> I got a kick out of that. But, but, but that's a big thing, to try to grow the game and the sport to make it appeal to more people than just, you know, the, the diehards, which, you know, somebody like me, I mean, that's me, right? I'm a diehard. You, you know, if I wasn't doing what I do, I'd be going to a ton of big league ball games every year. 
and I'd be, you know, I'd be there and I'd be watching the game and I'd, I'd be yelling, you know, at the, at the field, you know, uh, I, mm-hmm. I, that's not who major league baseball in their marketing and minor league baseball, especially that's not who they're marketing towards. Another story on that front on the minor league side is that uh, in Salem, Virginia, my first full-time gig in the minors, I worked there in 05 and 06, we were having a meeting and I noticed on the board, the, the different stations that we were airing advertising on the television channels. We had bought a Comcast spotlight package. And what that means is that you're able to pick with the amount of money that you're going to spend. You're down to the channel. Like, okay, I want to be on Lifetime. I want to be on ESPN. I want to be on Mass and, you know, these kinds of things, right? Well, the channels we had up there were almost all channels that I thought were geared towards women. So I I just, I, I was intrigued by that. I said, you know, I, I noticed this. What? Why is this the case? To my general manager, who's a, a very, very bright, long-time minor league executive named John Katz. He runs the team in Columbia, South Carolina now. And John said, well, Adam, yeah, very astute. He goes, we believe that the mom is more likely to make the decision as to where the family is going to go this weekend. So we want to air our ads. We, we're trying to get the family. Right. So we're so we're yeah. not going to go after dad. Dad already wants to go to the game. We're trying to convince mom to go to the game. And I thought that was very, very interesting that uh, that we were airing ads on channels that weren't the classic, you know, sports guys channels. Yeah, I've definitely seen um, base ox ads, not only on, as you said, Masson, mm-hmm. but I mean, other even other just local channels certainly certainly and it's it's a footprint right and uh you know that everybody's not going to come to every game um but uh you know there's different things like here's a, here's an interesting way the bay Sox, uh tried to market themselves so you've got the orioles are in town you know half the weekend and the nationals are in town the other half the bay Sox are in between baltimore and washington so being an oriole affiliate when when the Bay Sox are doing a more Oriole-centric uh, promotion. Like, let's say it's a Manny, you know, back in the day, Manny Machado or like Trey Mancini bobblehead night, right? Yeah. The Bay Sox are going to do that on a big day, a weekend game in which the Orioles are on the road so that they're promoting it through different Orioles, you know, functions. And then when the Orioles go on the road, you're more apt to draw that Oriole fan from Baltimore down to Bowie you know, to come to that game than if you're doing it on a Saturday night or a Sunday afternoon in which the Orioles are at Camden Yards. So when you see a lot of promotions for the Bay Sox that are kind of general or generic, like, oh, it's Paw Patrol night or it's, you know, things like that. A lot of times yeah. those happen when the Orioles are in Baltimore. And when the Orioles are on the road, the Bay Sox are more apt, uh, you know, to do a promotion uh, that is more baseball-centric to try to bring that Oriole fan down from Baltimore because they can't go to an Orioles game, you know, that weekend. So so that's just one of those little nuances uh, that you wouldn't think of right away to, to try to, you know, maximize your attendance. Which promotion do you think is the most popular among fans? Ah, boy, you know, throughout all of minor league baseball. Now, there are certain promotions, like I said, 
that are like traveling acts, you know, like the Cowboy Monkey Rodeo that I talked about earlier. That is that is mm-hmm. you know an extremely popular promotion. Other times, like certain promotions, like for one year, like a certain act is going around in, and and going to a lot of ballparks, and that's a huge draw. But if you're looking at standardized promotions, there's two that would stand out to me. One would be on thir- Thursday nights. You have Thirsty Thursday. You know, you have your dollar beer or, you know, like, like you know, cheap beer night on Thursday nights. Almost everybody does some version of that, and it's very popular. And then Sunday Family Fun Day. You know, b- being able to go out and play catch with your kids in the outfield an hour or an hour and a half before the game. Uh, being able to run the bases after the game. I know the Bay Sox do that every game, but some teams – you know, just do that on Sundays. And now you see major league teams uh, doing that as well. So um, it's, it's interesting, but um, some of these events, and then the number one promotion, I'd be completely remiss. is just fireworks, you know, fireworks, (coughs) excuse me, draw so many fans to the ballpark teams that already draw extremely well. will even have fireworks shows on like a Wednesday night. Because that's the night they have the toughest time drawing fans. You know, you're already on a Saturday. You don't need fireworks on a Saturday. So most teams use fireworks to boost their Friday and Saturday nights, their biggest nights. But the most successful teams actually do fireworks on like, you know, a Thursday night or a Tuesday night or you know something else because that's able to uh, help out a night in which they're not sold out. Yeah, I the yeah the yard goats game they had fireworks. I think it was on a Saturday night yeah. though. So poor poor marketing. <laughs> well, they, you know on, what? To be honest, they're so good right now with that brand new ballpark. They sold out. I think in 2019, 50 around 50, like 51 or 52 of their 70 dates, which is absolutely insane in, in minor league baseball. You know, so you just don't see teams selling out 80 uh, percent of their games. So that so that they are a. Uh, an absolute, uh, an absolutely incredible franchise right now. I want to transition over back to what's actually happening mm-hmm. on the field. So the Bay Sox won the Eastern League chip yes. in 2015. So on that team were future and past pros. Yeah, Jonathan Scope, Matt Weeders, Ryan Flaherty, J.J. Hardy, Trey Mancini, Dylan Bundy. I think Manny Machado was on that team Well, too. you might have had, you know, a few guys rehab, you know, like a few of those names. Machado was a 2012 Bay Sox scope, played a game or two, but he was really with the Bay Sox in 2012 and 13. But you had a lot of big leaguers. I mean, you know, you had Trey Mancini was the first baseman and the star of that team. Uh, Mike Ustremski, who's, who's just had an incredible late blooming career with the Giants, was an everyday ball player, a corner outfielder for the Bay Sox. Michael Givens, uh, you know, was Bowie's late inning, you know, one of their late inning relievers. And then a lot of other guys that have had really good careers, like Andrew Triggs has been in the big leagues for a while. He was Bowie's closer that year. Uh, Chance Cisco, one of the Orioles catchers, was the catcher of that team. Uh, I mean, if you just go around the diamond, um, you know, you're, you're going to get a lot of guys uh, that have played in the big leagues. Even, you know, a few of them it's been sparingly, but still, I mean, we had an incredible team that year. When you commentate games, is it clear who the pros are versus the minor leaguers? Uh, sometimes, but sometimes not. I think that's the beautiful thing of it all, you know. And I think that everybody, when you say pros, what most people think of is the stars, right? 
And a lot of times that is clear. Uh, when Matt Wieters was on my team in Frederick in 2008, along with Jake Arrieta pitching, I mean, they look different, you know. Manny Machado, Jonathan Scope. Scope was the, at that point, when he was with me in Frederick in 2011, everybody was all about Manny. It's like, man, we got this guy, Jonathan Scope. He's going to be really good, you know, and he has been. He's had an awesome career. And so, But there are people that really jump out, and Mike Yastrzemski is a great example of that a guy that kind of got stuck at double a uh, multiple years i mean really played in five different years for Bowie. he he really had about three full seasons in double a which is a lot you don't see many guys that make their major league debut at 27 28 29 years old and then kind of become stars and that's what's happened uh, with yastrzemski it is so incredible uh and exciting you know to see you really get to know these guys get to root for these guys. Uh, but you also have to trust your eye, right? So I do get a little bit cocky. Trey Mancini is the one I always uh, joke about because Trey was an eighth-round draft choice. And the year that he had, that he came through Bowie in 15 was his breakout year. And a lot of times people want to hear from some show or, you know, they want somebody to tell them that this guy's great, Right. So, but, but I could tell, yeah. you know, I mean, if you watched him play every day that year, it's like, wow. I mean, this guy is an incredible hitter and he's going to be a long time, really good big league bat. And uh, people didn't believe that. So when it started happening, it was, it was so exciting to see because he really was another underdog. I mean, you look at Mancini, he was the Orioles eighth round draft choice in 2013. And Mike Yastrzemski was their 14th round draft choice in 2013. I mean, usually an eighth and 14th round draft choice uh, don't end up becoming uh, outstanding big league ball players. So really, really awesome. Um, it's been great to be around these guys, especially being an Oriole fan my whole life. And now you're riding buses. And I look out there when I watch an Orioles game, you know, next year. And, uh, you know, Cisco, Mountcastle, uh, DJ Stewart, Austin Hayes, Cedric Mullins, I mean, it's just, and that's, it's just an unbelievable list of players. Uh, Austin wins and then into the pitching staff. Uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's just a never ending list over half the players uh, that are in the big leagues, you know, personally, and that's, that's pretty wild. Who's the best player you've ever witnessed in person in the minors? Oh, that's a good one. I think that uh, <clears throat> the most dominant player, the funny thing is I never even saw him, but the most dominant player at his age at the level of double A had to be Vlad Guerrero Jr. So I'm kind of waiting for him to break out and be an absolute big league monster because what he did to hit 400 in the Eastern League as a 19-year-old, it just does not happen. You know, Manny Machado hit 250 as a 19, 18, 19-year-old 19 in double A. So to hit, to hit 400, I mean, <clears throat> I still can't get over what, Vlad did in in uh, uh, New Hampshire two years ago. It was absolutely absurd. But uh, but all in all, as far as uh, my, my team, God, who would be the most dominant? I mean, the first really dominant player that was on my team that I broadcast that I was like, whoa, was Hunter Pence, who just finished up his big league career. I was a single-A broadcaster. He was a second-round draft choice. He was not yet a big prospect. Yeah, I mean, he was rated between number 10 and 20 in the Astro system. The Astro system at that time wasn't supposed to be very good. 
And when I saw Pence play in Salem in 2005, it was like, whoa. I mean, this guy is an awesome, you know? Um, and on that team as well, yeah. we had a ninth-round shortstop that I remember asking somebody, do you think he's going to be a major leaguer? And our beat writer said, oh, heck yeah. And it was Ben Zobrist. You know, and Zobrist had such a long, great career. I believe a World Series MVP, one World Series with the Royals and the Cubs. I, you know, I, I just, um, I mean, I've had such a unique career. When you look through the best players, you know, the Orioles, unfortunately, were down in the dumps for a while early in my career in the Orioles system. So we always had a top pick. So, you know, you had guys like Matt Wieters and Arietta, and then you had, uh, after that, um, you had Brian Mattis and Zach Britton, and then you had Machado and Scope and Dylan Bundy and Kevin Gosman. And, of course, that, that has kind of gone through into this new era. So it, it's, um, you know, we've had a, lo- a lot of, of really top picks and probably the most natural and best baseball player uh, you know, that that's been on my team would be Manny Machado. Uh, Matt Wieters, though, was a much more dominant player. Uh, Matt Wieters was a 22 year old collegiate catcher. And when he was on my team in Frederick, I, I don't think that I've really seen anything like what Matt Wieters did in Frederick in 08. And then what Trey Mancini did in Bowie in 15. But boy, Machado was an incredible defender. He was 18 years old in high A when he was on my team. And, uh, what a natural gifted athlete. I mean, there was that one play, I think it was against the Yankees where I forgot who <laughs> hit it down the third baseline. Machado backhands yes. it, fumbles it yep. into foul territory and then just whips it and barely gets the guy. And I'm watching that game. and I'm like, how do you just <laughs> do that? He left me in disbelief. There was a play it was where insane. They hit a slow dribbler to short in Frederick and Machado charged gloved it threw it off the wrong foot just a laser beam the first got the out easily on a play that no other shortstop in our league would have even come close to making and after the game it's just my manager and i and the pitching coach in our room and the manager sees manny walking by goes manny and manny comes in and goes how did you make that play like how did you do that and manny's like oh that's what Derek jeter does and i just love jeter and that's how you know, I, I just try to pick up his mannerism. You know, he just he's doing it naturally. You know, <laughs> and uh, so it, it's it's pretty cool when when you're around some of these players. And the other thing about it is the personal side because when you meet somebody like Manny Machado when they're 18 years old, I mean, I haven't seen Manny in years, but I'm telling you, uh, he's a good good guy, especially with people he knows and with kids. Like if if I walked up to him, especially like with my daughter, because. One thing I noticed with Manny is he is great with kids. You know, Manny would remember me and he'd know that I knew him before he was famous. And, you know, he'd probably interact. You know, he, it, it's just, it's one of these things where when you know somebody before they, they gain that fame and acclaim and, of course, all that money, um, even though Manny was the guy that got a huge signing bonus uh, when he was drafted, it, it's just different. It's like knowing it's like seeing a rock band or, or knowing people before they hit the acclaim. So I, I know that it's, it's always great to see some of the guys uh, after they've made it. And, uh, and, and they're really, it's, it's neat to, to, to see them and them thinking, Oh my goodness, it kind of puts them back in a place, you know, when they were at that time, you know, back uh, whether it would have been in Frederick or in Bowie. So I want to talk about mm-hmm. those kinds of relationships when you're the commentator, of a team, whether it be the Bay Sox or the Keys, 
Do you develop strong relationships with the players, like personal? You know, for me, I feel bad saying this, but but like probably when I was younger, you know, when I started, I was the age of the players. Like when I talk about broadcasting Hunter Pence, I'm like two or three years older than Hunter Pence, you know. But but now when I broadcast, if I was to broadcast Adley Rutschman next year, you know, I I I literally was in college when he was born. So so it's a little bit different now. Um, I'm more of the age of of the coaches. You also have to realize it's not your team. You know, if you're on the bus, uh, you're almost like a visitor. As a radio broadcaster that works for the Bowie Bay Sox, I get paid by the Bay Sox. Everybody else in that bus is paid for by the Orioles. So, so there's got to be a respect thing. But in the same regard, you know, you don't have to be a fly ball all the time. And you have to be a person. And there's got to be a trust. You know, if somebody tells you, uh, a personal story that they don't want other people to know, or you're around, you know, when somebody, I, you, you know, you hear and you see stuff that's, that's not for the airwaves and you have to have gained the trust and the respect of these people, these ball players, so that they know that they, they're okay. Or they're okay with buddy and you're five feet away. They're not like, Oh my goodness, you know what happens? So, I think that that is extremely important. And, uh, you know, for me, I take the mindset of what I'm broadcasting. I'm very prepared in what I'm going to say before the game. So, therefore, there's not much that's going to throw me off of that, number one. But number two, it's that I really genuinely want all of my players to do well. If they don't do well, I, I talk about that. And there's a little bit of frustration but it's, it's coming from the mindset of, I want them to do well. And I think that that really comes across a genuine want uh, for success, both individual and team oriented. And because of that, I think you can really draw your listeners in and uh, make them more passionate for, uh, for listening and the outcome of that game. And just have the understanding that um, every, everything matters. And, um, you know, it's a 13-3 game and you're winning and you bring in a struggling reliever and he gives up five runs in the ninth inning and you win 13-8. It's easy to be like, well, who cares? That guy sucks. Well, that guy's dream is dying, you know? His dream of getting to the big leagues, him giving up five runs in that ninth inning, you know, is it, it's absolutely, it, it, you know, he's probably hanging on a thread to not get cut, right? To be pitching in a 13-3 game in the ninth inning, number one. And then, so, so you just have to understand those things, your place, and and have that, I guess, social acumen and awareness, and I, I hope that that I have that. I mean, you know, it's easy to say you do, but 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 I, I've tried to uh, to to kind of be be right in that in my career. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right, I want to transition yeah. over to the mount because I do have a couple of questions with that. Um, I just checked ESPN. Unless they're wrong, they haven't had a game since. Uh, last yeah, time, I believe correct? I believe not. You know, they played last against the University of Maryland on uh, Saturday. I think <clears throat> I might be wrong on the date there. I might be wrong. They've played three oh. games. So, right. are you excited for your first <laughs> yeah, broadcast? I was supposed to have one uh, here this week for women, a women's game. And uh, I drove almost all the way to the mount, which is a little bit more than an hour for me. And I got five minutes away and they told me to turn around and go back because 
uh, Coppin State had a player, unfortunately, test positive on the women's side. So I was supposed to have a game here, but um, but I am going to have my first game here in a few days. Uh, it's been over 260 days since I've broadcast a game. Um, I've always been very proud of this. Jeff Arnold, uh, one of the voices of the Orioles now, uh, along with me for years in Maryland, have called more games live on the air, you know, albeit, you know, minor league baseball and small college, but well, we have called more games per year in this state than anybody else by far. And the reason for it. Even, even, even Gary Thorne. <laughs> Gary Thorne does a me? lot, but Gary Thorne does 110 games a year. And, uh, you know, when you put together our 140 game season, and I would do 30 or 40 basketball and maybe a few more other games at different sports. I'd be up around 180 or 190 broadcasts a year for just in the state of Maryland, you know? So, so you know, you even think about guys like uh, Johnny Holiday, you know, with the universe, Voice of the Terps. I, it, nobody was doing as many games as me every year. Myself and Jeff Arnold I put on that list too. Uh, also, maybe whoever did Delmarva, Delmarva's broadcaster that also did Maryland Eastern Shore would be on that list also. But but so <laughs> the funny thing about that is here you are this year and like, man, I don't know how many broadcasts I've done, but it's been so weird to go nine months without calling a game when in a, in a usual year, there's 365 Absolutely. days in a year and you might broadcast 150 to 190 games. You, that's like doing a game every other night, you know? And here I am, I haven't called the game in nine months. So it's going to be fun to do, to, uh, to, to kind of break this long uh, stretch of, uh, 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 without calling a game. <laughs> yeah. I was watching, uh, West Virginia, yeah. Gonzaga and Illinois Baylor last night. First of all, wow. Four they really are awesome teams that I just, even though obviously Illinois and West Virginia lost, they, they, the quality of basketball, was yes. really high, and watching guys like Drew, uh, Drew. Granted, Drew Timmy was a little off last night, but even him and Kiss Bear and Suggs. Wow, he's been. Uh, hopefully, he can not be they, injured. They play so that would be really nice. It's such a pace. I watched a little bit of Baylor Illinois in the first half, and I was like, "Oh my god!" I mean, this thing is unbelievable. You know, it was warp speed. And then it was incredible just how West Virginia just yeah. crashes the board so hard. You got Shibwe and I forgot the other guy, but it was just really physical and it was high quality basketball. Anyway, mm-hmm. I want to go back to when you yeah. first joined the Mountain in 2012. From your perspective and observations as a broadcaster, how has college basketball changed yeah, since I you mean, joined the, the Mountain? You know, the, the main way it's changed is just transfers. You know, when I, and, and that changed soon after that, but. Um, 2012, you were just so much more apt to seeing guys stay all four years. Uh, and especially when you're looking at a school at the level of Mount St. Mary's, which would be, you know, a team that you win your conference tournament, you're going to be a 16 seed, 15, 14, 15, or 16 seed in the NCAA tournament. What I mean by that is that, you know, it used to be always, if you had a big role on a team, you were going to stay with that team, right? But there's 14, whatever, 15 scholarships. Mm-hmm. Well, there's only five guys on the floor. A lot of times the rotation might be seven to ten players. So there's five scholarship players that's not that, that aren't really playing. 
So if you go to a school, you're unable to break the rotation. Look, that, that's why guys used to transfer, right? So what, what the term now is, is called up transferring. You never used to see guys. It was very rare to see a player up transfer. Meaning if I'm not playing right at Mount St. Mary's, well, I, I might be able to go down to a division two school and I might be like, you know, a really good player, a star player there and have a better experience. I want to play. And, and, and that's what we saw yeah. a lot of, or, or maybe look, I'm going to go to another school that's similar to the Mount, whatever. But what you started seeing was what happened to Mount St. Mary's in 2017. The Mount had, uh, you know, a six-man rotation, three juniors, uh, six really dominant players for our level. You know, you had three outstanding juniors. You then had uh, two sophomores and a freshman. It really looked like the, the school was set. The Mount went to the NCAA tournament. I mean, they had an outstanding, outstanding year in conference play. I think they lost four games. So they went 14-4 and four regular season conference. They then won three games to win the tournament, 17-4. and four. They then won against New Orleans in the NCAA tournament. So they were 18-4 and four from the beginning of conference play. And then they gave Villanova a run for their money. Well, what ends up happening is you think the Mount's going to come back. It might be the greatest Mount team ever that next year. But that's one of the sophomores transferred to Texas. Well, the other sophomore up transferred to Kansas State. And then the freshman stunned everybody and transferred to the University of Miami. And all. So his name Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Wilson, which, which one? Which one? And he actually never ended up playing for the Hurricanes. Miles got into trouble in his sit out okay. here and actually was dismissed from the program. But he, he went to the University of Miami for two to three, you know, two semesters or whatever. So it's okay. Yeah, I was wondering if I had, I had heard of them because they're 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 yeah, the so, they're the team I follow so the most. So I was curious yeah, so, to, to see. Know, it's but, funny yeah. how this can happen, right? But but the the player that went to Kansas State was our big, our starting center, and he went to Kansas State, and he was able because he had graduated from the Mountain three years because he was a redshirt guy very bright player he was able to go as a grad transfer with two years of eligibility so he played at kansas state and it was a team that went to the elite eight but he ended up he he was the starter in their opening game but by the end of the year he was on the bench so then he played his last season he down and he played a year at radford on a really good radford team where he was a starter and then the other player was elijah long uh elijah mitru long whose brother was the a star player at Iowa State, and he was the Mount's point guard. Yeah, he transferred oh, to I Texas. know who you're talking about. Was his name like – was it Was it like Ty? Was it no, Ty? it was different. Long, or am I just making that up? But I know who you're talking it, about. It was Eli. E-L- Eli Long. E-L-I. And Elijah – so what he did was, you know, he had to sit out a year. Then he played what would have been his senior year at the Mount. He played his junior year at Texas, but he was the backup point guard. And instead of going back to Texas, he actually finished his college career last year as a grad transfer and the starting point guard at UNLV. So, you know, I mean, look, I'm not saying that they would have had a better career if they just kept playing at the Mount, but he got, they got to play at some big places and, and do some great things. But the reality of it is that 
you know, Mount St. Mary's was poised that next year to have their greatest season ever, there's a chance maybe the Mount could be like a, you know, four, 13, 14 seed type, well, probably 14, 15 seed, but like a dangerous team, like, like a team nobody wants to play, you know? That three seed in the Big Ten is like, oh, you know, do we really want to play these guys? Because uh, the Mount was the kind of team that could just hit a bunch of threes and knock off somebody, you know? And so it just uh, it just didn't happen. So so that that would be the biggest change. There used to be two or three hundred transfers a year in the college ranks, maybe four hundred when I got into it in twenty twelve, and now that number's more than a thousand a year. I completely agree with you in that you definitely get a lot more exposure mm-hmm. regardless of your role at a big school. Whereas in baseball, you can go to a D2, D3, NAIA school if you don't obviously go to the majors immediately mm-hmm. out of high school. As long as you're good, you can still get exposure, which is definitely not the case sure. for college basketball. Because I think, the, I think there was one guy from like a – I mean, I could be completely wrong. But I think Grant Riller, the mm-hmm. point guard from a College of Charleston, that was like the smallest school that was represented in this right. year's draft. And you don't really see guys from a D2 school, like even just, I don't know, a, a Stony Brook it's, or a Merriman. It's unusual. It really Saint is. Francis. I mean, the Mount has only had two players ever play in the NBA. Um, so, so there's an example right there. But it can happen. I mean, the Patriot League is a good example. I mean, the Patriot League is very similar to the Mount's level of basketball. And obviously they've had some studs, you know, come out here. Uh, in, in the last few years with C.J. McCollum, who's a star of the Blazers. And then uh, I think his name is Mike Muscala. McCollum went to Lehigh, and he beat Duke in the first round of the tournament as Lehigh's star. And then um, yeah, and then uh, Muscala is a big for – I'm trying to think of where he is right now in the, in the NBA, but he was, he was a Bucknell player. So, so it can happen. But you're right. I mean, it, it is not as common – to see, but like even with Mount St. Mary's, one, one of the stars of that 17 team, Junior Robinson, a spark plug, five foot four guard. I mean, he's he the did. one who hit the go ahead shot. He's having an outstanding uh, career in Spain, uh, you know, playing throughout Europe. There's a lot of players that are of, you know, the, at, that, that have gone through the Mount in my time at the Mount that have had long international careers. It's really, really cool to see. So, I want to ask the same question I did as the Bay Sox. So, the Mount, the last few years, they've played against teams with future pros. Just Villanova, Maryland, Kentucky, Michigan, Washington. All teams with guys that would eventually go to the NBA. So, same concept as the Bay Sox question. Could you tell certain guys were going to the league versus Oh, definitely. In the, the NBA, rest? it's even different because so much of it – or in college basketball, basketball itself, it's size. You know, I remember, you know, I remember when we were at the first four, uh, my first time in 2014, team all year, and the Mount players compared to me, I'm five foot six and a half. I mean, the Mount players are enormous, right? And then <laughs> the, the, the University of Tennessee was staying at our hotel, and I was doing work in the lobby, and they came walking out to go to practice, and it just hit me. I'm like, wow. I mean, look, the difference between that team and our team in size was absolutely incredible. Um, I, I, I obviously, as far as 
you know, specific players. God, I, I really have to think. But I, I have ha- been able to broadcast, you know, team, some teams that were really, really good. And uh, I guess I'll just go to that Villanova team because they won the title in 17. They won the title in 19. And I, I was able to broadcast them twice. Uh, in the actual NCAA tournament game, off the bench uh, was that guard, DiVincenzo. Oh, my God. Yeah, and he really Dante beat DiVincenzo. them out. You know, I mean, I'm not saying they weren't going to beat them out anyways. But without him, I think that game is, is going to be a pretty close game. And when he came off the bench, it just changed the entire game. The Mount was winning early, and he kind of took things over. I, 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 did, I, I did enjoy – you know, the first time I broadcast the Villanova game, I went to their broadcaster, who's actually a teacher in Northern Virginia, and he, uh, <laughs> I said, hey, it was Villanova's first or second game of, of the year. I said, hey, is this, is this guard going to, is he going to play? You know, like, because I, I, I didn't even want to learn the guy's name. It was so long, you know. And <laughs> he looked at me and laughed. He goes, Adam, that guy's going to play a lot. And it was Archie Diacono. I had to, uh, I had to freaking practice how to say his name because you don't see many five syllable names, you know. <laughs> and of course, he ended up being an absolute superstar collegiate player and uh, made the pass off uh, for what would end up being that game winning three at the buzzer, one of the great plays in NCAA history. Unfortunately for me, being a, a Carolina alumni, but um, but yeah, we. I mean, I've seen some Oof. great ones, and and I grew up a big Georgetown fan. Um, so, you know, being able to see Georgetown and then of course, Maryland being able to broadcast the Terps quite a bit, you know, guys like Bruno Fernando and such. I mean, it, it's been pretty cool to be up close and, and see some of these great players. You think Jalen Smith's going to make a name for himself in the Valley? He's outstanding. I think that, um, you know, one thing in the NBA right now is scoring right now. It is an era of scoring. And Jalen Smith, I think, is going to be a premier, uh, you know, defender in the league. And it's not really going to stand out as far as being the superstar player. You know, he's not going to turn into like the next Giannis with his size or anything. But he is going to be a force. I just think he's going to be a solid player that all of a sudden, like seven or eight years from now, you're like, oh, my goodness, he's still in the league. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, and he's just made a ton of money, you know. Yeah. And, and you don't even realize it, you know. I I, I kind of see that kind of career for him. Yeah. Who's the best college player you've seen? Man, that's in a good question. Broadcast. That is a really, really good question. Um, I don't know. I mean, um, yeah, you know, North, you can't pick like one of the best on its side and, and bring it to the Northeast Conference. I know, obviously, you know, this wouldn't be like a, a, a super famous ball player, but. Man, there was a guy on St. Francis, Brooklyn, which is a team that's never been to the NCAA tournament, uh, St. Francis College in, in uh, Brooklyn, New York, Brooklyn Heights, named Jalen Cannon. And I loved him as a player because he was like the Charles Barkley of the NEC. He dominated our league for a few years, and he was like a 6'4 or 6'5 big. You know? <laughs> oh, my God. A 6'4 so or 6'5 big. And I always said that like a reverse Jamie Magic Robinson, Johnson or a player that we just talked about. Like, you know, if Junior was six one, he'd be in the NBA. I mean, he, he was an unbelievable basketball player. His the problem and the athleticism was insane. 
the problem for him was that he was five foot four. I know that there are some players that have made it, like the Muggsy Bogues of the world and such. But, but you know, for Jalen Cannon, and he's one of just many in the league that's been so good over the years. But I just always respected his game because he was a guy. I'm like, man, if this dude was six ten, he'd be in the league. You know, what I'm saying like he was he was so good, so talented yeah. and gifted as a big man, back to the bucket player. I mean, he just had everything. And, uh, and, and he just obviously was not going to be a uh, NBA player as a six foot four, six foot five, you know, low post player. So just a not, not related to the Mount St. Mary's question. I do want to get your opinion on this because I've been thinking about this for the last couple of days. What's been your favorite NCAA tournament <laughs> since 2012? Oh, man. I mean, I joked about it with my buddies, but obviously it, for me personally, it was 2017 because, yeah, because the, the Mount. Okay, the Mount well, that's a little biased. Game, and <laughs> we played in the first four, and we played the first game of the tournament, of the whole tournament. And I joked with my buddies at Carolina who have become Mount fans, like a lot of my best friends that I went to college with because they just love college basketball more than any other sport, being UNC fans their entire life. So they were all excited that I was there and, and that the Mount was there. And uh, one of them joked, he goes, hey, he goes, let's make sure the Mount wins the first game of this tournament and Carolina wins the last. <laughs> and, and, and I got a good laugh about wow. that. Uh, on like noon of the uh, first four game. And that's exactly what happened. The Mount won the first game and the Tar Heels won one of the worst championship games ever when they beat Gonzaga in a game that had about 7,000 fouls. But uh... yeah, I can't really remember that game. I think it's for good reason. I can't remember anything really like super exciting that happened that game. (laughs) Yeah. I remember there were a lot of fouls, but we've had so many, you know, really good ones. You know, when you look back, uh, over over the last few years, um, I, I I the the tournament obviously that ended with Villanova winning at the buzzer was unbelievable. Um, I, I I mean, it matters what you want. Do you want you know great Final Four games, the classic games, or or do you want you know the unbelievable early round shenanigans? So I'd have to think back, but but there's no better day on the sports calendar. Then the Thursday and Friday of the, you know, the first round of the NCAA tournament. I mean, there's nothing better. Oh my God. It's, 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 it's so much fun. Just like you're in class <laughs> and you're trying to sneak a game on your phone while it's just talking. And then once you write, right when you get out of school, you're watching on the bus. And when you get home, you got, you get to flip the channels to the seven first round games are on. Oh, I, there's March Madness is honestly like, it, it's like Christmas day. It's honestly like Christmas Day when they first the the selection process that's always fun, and then mm-hmm. you make your bracket. Just a quick yeah, question: Yeah, I do. I'm How, not, I'm not do, good do you at make it. a bracket? And I went to Vegas. I got to go to Vegas for a. Uh, yeah, I don't think any of the other millions of people that play it are opening weekend, and everybody thought I was going to make all this money, and uh, I I completely misbet the games. You know, I had three or four games that I told everybody that, that like, I was really focused on. But then in every one of those games, I got right. But then I wanted to bet every game, you know, because you're in Vegas and that's going to make it more fun. And I literally, you know, I, I lost mm-hmm. handed overall. Yeah. 
Hold on, wait. Talk, talk to me. What was your what was your oh, worst bet you know, of that? I, well, that tournament? I, I would say what is my worst non bet. I, I was talking it up that UVA was going to win the title uh, going into it, and you can make a bet like that uh, going in. Of course, I didn't, and uh, everybody was like, "Oh my god!" And I'm like, "Yeah, I just lost you know all this money." But but um, I also the one team that I didn't bet enough on that I really like going to that tournament is a team that probably should have won it, which is Auburn. And, um, you know, like I just, I was all, oh, absolutely. Auburn, I wanted to bet every, every game, you know, and, and I, I kind of got burned by some of the small schools I love, you know, but, uh, you know, I have, I remember, uh, everybody yeah. was joking with me when I, I was telling everybody that Wofford, you had to bet Wofford against Kentucky <laughs> and it looked like it was going to happen. I mean, come on, Fletcher McGee, single-handedly going to like, it did not happen. And, and that was uh, that was a funny uh, heartbreaker. <laughs> oh my God! Incredible. Dang, Fletcher McGee was fun to watch at Wofford. So good, Dude, like he was like he was like, he was like Duncan Robinson. This is really really like, random. As Duncan Robinson was making but it, we were at a four-team tournament, the Mount St. Marys at Wofford a few years ago, and this was of course when Fletcher McGee was not you know a known commodity at all, and. Uh, <laughs> Wofford ended up playing a Division II team uh, ahead of our game with North Florida uh, in the first game that we were going to play there. And uh, so we were playing North Florida on Wofford's floor. So I'm just sitting there watching Wofford play this Division II team. And I think, you know, Fletcher, I, I, I'd have to look back, but he, he played probably 25 minutes and scored 30, 35 points. And it's like, God, this, this, I mean, I was thinking about the whole team, but I'm like, this team can shoot. They just move the ball. But you're thinking, okay, they're playing a D2 team. So the next year I kind of got on the Wofford bandwagon because I'd actually watched them, you know, play a game live in front of an almost empty gym, you know, the year before. The, yeah, yeah, it's college basketball is so much fun. I don't know about you, but it, it's it's just really fun. And hopefully we can get fans back. That's what makes it fun. And hopefully uh, next year. And we got to have it. So. Absolutely. All right. So I want to transition on to the radio slash podcasting little niche you have. So you run a baseball yeah, podcast in the past. for BaltimoreBaseball.com. Yes. You have. You have. I just have one question because obviously I'm doing this. I want to start building my voice, sort of creating my voice. What are some tips on how to keep an audience intrigued during a certain time yeah, I guess, of radio I guess, shows? I guess, you know, podcast? who you're talking to is the most important. For me, I had the podcast that wasn't like the preeminent podcast on Orioles minor league baseball. I mean, so that was cool because I always had, you know, a, a pretty set, you know, topic, <laughs> Right where I was going to be talking to a player or a coach or a scout or, you know, whatever. So I, I thought it was a very interesting podcast. You know, for me, it was just so niche, you know, it, uh, meaning how many people are really going to every week listen to a 30 minute show, you know, about Orioles minor league baseball. So all in all though, um, that the thing you want, like, that you got to battle. It's like, for me, I was doing that for a specific reason because nobody else was doing it. And, uh, and I really, really enjoyed doing it. I had the access, right. 
So it was very easy for me to do it. And I am an expert on that because of my job. So it was a great fit for me. You know, for somebody that's young and getting into this, the question that you've got to fight is, do I try to do something that everybody really likes and cares about already, but is being done so many times over? Or do I try to do something unique and different? And um, all in all, to me, I know that this is going to contrast what I just said. The most important thing is not even so much that aspect. It's all about doing it, getting the experience when you're young, developing your voice, getting comfortable on air, getting comfortable in talking to people, because if you are able to grow that and become the best at that, that is what's going to take you no matter what you're talking about. So. That's great. That's great. And so I want to transition to mm -hmm. our last topic before we get out of here. Just some advice. To anyone who's lasted this long, first of all, thank you for <laughs> thank, you, thank yeah. you for staying. We appreciate it. Um, what advice do you have for kids my age or around my age who want to go well, into you know, a I don't career want to say don't do in broadcasting? Did, but you know what I have done in my career has—it's it, not a surprise where I am, and I'm not upset. Uh, you know that I am, you know, just a minor league broadcaster and and calling uh, a school, you know, division one school, but you know, a Mount St. Mary's by any means. Right. But, but obviously you do think, okay, what, what, or how can I get to a bigger team, you know, a major league broadcaster, uh, you know, a, a bigger place where what you're doing is just calling games for a living. You know, that's always been what I want, what my, you know, long-term aspirations were. So I, I would say that in life, so much of it is who you work for, who you know, who you're connected to. This industry, it, it, it's, not, it's a very subjective industry, meaning somebody might hear a tape of yours and love it. Somebody else, it might not be their cup of tea. So for you to be able to build relationships, work um, with important people, and do a great job, no matter what your job is, you know, whatever you're doing, you need to do a great job at it. That is the most important thing because the person that you're working for uh, is going to be your lifeline, meaning you're up for that next position. They really like you. They're going to reach out to that person. And if you get a glowing review, it's going to move you on, or it could even be more direct than that. Meaning, you know, the person you work for finds out about a position thinks about you as a perfect person for it and you know next thing you know they're the one that is extending that olive branch so that that's what i would do i really it's all about people it's not about not everything is about you know this talent you have or whatever it's all about being a good person connecting and uh and all in all uh, that's going to push push you forward so working with important people is is huge and that's why you know, when you're in college, internships, I mean, you know, here we are, you're right near D.C. and Baltimore. Take advantage, you know, sports talk radio, um, the, the nightly like NBC4 in D.C. or, uh, you know, WBAL in Baltimore, you know, all these channels. I mean, there, there are opportunities out there, uh, radio like WTOP in D.C. I mean, there, there's so many uh, opportunities in which to work for people 
and and kind of get your foot in the door. But and and I would try to do that wherever wherever you are. Yeah, thank you, Clinton. No Adam, doubt. It's been Good a luck, pleasure. my man. Keep me. Thank you so much for coming on. Things go for you, and thank you for everybody that's hung on listening uh, to this. Uh, it's been a lot of fun being a part of it. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, make sure everyone stay safe, wear a mask when you go out in public, and make sure everyone 